you would take your Bible and turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Thank you for leading us in music this morning before the throne of God. I hope that that is your prayer, that the Lord would speak to us this morning through his word. If you're joining us this morning as a visitor, we are in the midst of a sermon series through the book of Numbers. Steve and I this week talked about uh, ending the series and planning out through the summer. And uh, so we have planned the rest of the the messages in this series. And I, I don't know that you ever think about planning sermons around different Sundays, but it's something that's pretty big in our uh, in our discussion sometimes. And uh, when I knew that Steve was going to preach for me the last two weeks, I kept telling him, I kept offering to him, I, I was behind on getting him to where he was supposed to be on the first Sunday that he preached, and uh, so I, even then I was offering to him, now if you don't get to 21, that'll be fine, I'll, I'll take care of that, and he preached the first week, he said, I'm going to get there, we're going to be there, and I said, well next week, you know, if you just want to do 20, I'll, I'll do 21, it, it's all right if you don't get there, and first of the week he was like, I think we can get it. Uh, by Friday, I called him one more time. I said, look, if you, if you don't get to 21 Sunday, I know that 20 is really, really big. If you don't get to 21, it's fine. I'll, I'll do it when I get back. And he finally, I think, got the hint. And he said, look, man, I'm only going to do 20. Why don't you do 21 when, uh, when you get back? So I've been looking forward uh, to Numbers 21. This is the one chapter that I really uh, just connected with and wanted to bring to you when we started this series Uh, in numbers. And while I absolutely trust Steve and his preaching and know from reports from you that he really preaches the word and just from hearing him, I know that his study is good. Uh, I I didn't want to give up numbers 21 in this study. And so he was gracious to let me get us here. As you know, Numbers is a story about a people of God traveling from slavery and bondage in Egypt to a land that was promised to their forefathers in what God called to Abraham the promised land. A land of promise and plenty, fertile and flowing with milk and honey. We've seen the generation of people that God delivered from Egypt. From slavery, those very people who witnessed God miraculously deliver them, part the Red Sea and bring them to Mount Sinai where he met with them. God met with these people. He delivered them. We have seen them rebel and complain and refuse to trust God over and over. We heard God's judgment upon them. No one over the age of 20 will ever see the promised land. So God sent his judgment. He said, you will be in this wilderness, this desert, for 40 years. We have seen them during this 40 years complain and rebel against God. More lack of faith in God. And we come to Numbers chapter 20. And we get to the people. At the end of 40 years in the wilderness, once again on the doorstep of the promised land. And the question is, will you trust God and go into the land that He promised that He is giving you? And so in Numbers chapter 20 last week, you saw the people there in a chapter that is not encouraging, a chapter that reveals to us the the failure of even the leadership of Israel. We've seen over and over again the people would complain and rebel. And then you get to Numbers 20 and they're on the doorstep yet again. And you ask, will they go in? And it starts with the burial, the death and burial of one of the leaders, Miriam. It pinnacles in 
the failure of Moses and his trust in God. And then it ends with the death and burial of Aaron, another leader. So you're wondering, Lord, will it ever happen? The leadership now has failed and you get to chapter 21 and it's a contrast to chapter 20. You've got a new generation, an an, an entire generation of people. Everyone 20 years and older has passed away and these 20-year-olds are now 60. You're wondering, will they trust God and go into the land? Will they? 21 is an incredible. An incredibly encouraging chapter to us. The looming question since chapter 14. Will the second generation trust God or will they repeat the same mistakes? Notice with me. The scripture that you have heard read this morning. They still rebel. The difference in chapter 21 is not that the people don't rebel or don't sin. The difference is in their turning And God's deliverance. So chapter 21 starts with a great victory. And it ends with a great victory. And in the middle, the people rebel. They repent. And God delivers. And so I want to walk through this chapter with you. And then make some application for us. Notice it's bookended by victories that come to Israel. Look at chapter 21. You can look at verses 1 through 3 with me. I challenge you to read this text this afternoon. Israel travels by the way of the Atharim. That is a a path going up from the Negev, from the the, uh, Sinai Peninsula there on your current maps. If you see there uh, uh, east of Egypt, and they're coming up into what is modern day Israel, up to the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham and his descendants forever. And as they travel away uh, the way of the Atharim through the Canaanite land, there is King Arad that comes. And he does battle with them. And so in verse 1, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel does something that they have not done yet. They come to the Lord and pray. They ask for God's presence with them in the battle. Now, before we move on, I want you to realize with me for a moment. Go back in your mind to chapter 14 when we were studying the people of Israel had sent spies into the land. They came back. Two of them said, God is giving us the land. We can take it. Let's go in and take it because God has said we can. Ten of them said, oh no, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And the people of Israel say, we can't go up. We're rebelling against God. We don't trust God in this. And they turn away. They don't go into the land. God sends a plague. God sends judgment. And His judgment is you're going to be in the wilderness until everybody over the age of 20 dies. What do the people of Israel do? They say, oh my, we were wrong, Moses. And they go up into the land anyway to do battle. Do you know where they were when they went into the land to do battle? King Arad in the Canaanite land. They fought this king before. And they were soundly defeated. Because God did not go with them. It was another act of disobedience when they went up and God had said, no, you go down. You go into the wilderness and stay 40 years. They're like, no, we can take it. We're going to go now. God gave them defeat. Now they're back, the same land, the same king, and they are going to go to the Lord and say, God, if you, if you will give this land to us, if you will give us victory, we will devote the cities of this land to you as an offering, as destruction, complete destruction. And so in verse 3, you see the name of the place was called Hormah. We've already seen that. It means destruction. 
and God gives it to the people of Israel. Except now, the destruction doesn't mean the destruction of the people of God. It's the destruction of the people that God's giving His people. So they have victory. They prayed. They believed God for the victory. What's the difference? The difference is in the faith, the trust of the people, and God's presence with them. God goes with them, and they defeat the Canaanites. Verse 4. It's the passage we read just a few moments ago. In the middle of this chapter is Israel rebelling yet again. On their way up, second generation of people, on the edge of the land God had promised to give them, they rebel, they experience judgment, notice they repent, and they experience deliverance. It's the pattern that we've seen a couple of times. They're going around Edom. If you remember in chapter 20, Edom refuses twice for Israel to come through. They say, we'll take the highway. We will not depart from the right or the left of it. We will not go through your fields. We will not uh, 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 mess your land up. We'll not take your crops. We'll just go straight on the road through your land. Will you, as our brother, will you let us pass? And they said, no, you can't. They form their armies against them to keep them from going. And so Israel here being kin to the Edomites, come and they say, we'll go around them. And they go up around Edom in the horribly infested land, hard walking to go around Edom. And so they go, verse 4, they become impatient on the way. Sound familiar? They speak against God and against Moses Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We've heard this before. Same sins, same complaints, same lack of trust. And our hope for Israel just crashes. There is no food. There is no water. And this food that you have given us is not even food. They they say there's no food. And then they say the food that we have, Lord, this manna, this that you gave us to sustain us, it's worthless. We loathe it. Don't even like what you've called food, Lord. So they begin to complain just like before, 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 out of Sinai, coming to the promised land, they rebel. God sends judgment. I feel a bit like Indiana Jones when I get to chapter 21, verse 6. It had to be snakes. I'm not a snake fan. I know some of you may be, but I can't imagine being in the wilderness, looking around and God sending snakes. I do believe that would be the worst for me. So God sends fiery serpents among the people. They bite them and many die. Verse 7 is perhaps the key to this passage. The people come to Moses and say, notice this, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They realize their sin. They own their sin. They agree together with God that they have sinned. And they say, will you pray that God would take this away? Will you pray that God would take this away from us? And so Moses prays and God provides a way of deliverance and healing. God says, Moses, I want you to take some copper, form it into a snake, and put it up on a stick. This brazen serpent, hold it up over the people. 
and tell them to look. And those who see this snake, this sign of the curse, and they see it, they shall live. So Moses made it. He set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the brazen serpent and he would live. If I had to title the message today, it would simply be this. Look, look, and live. The difference here is the people repent and God provides a way of healing. Look to this serpent. Be reminded of the judgment of God upon you. Look at the very thing that is biting you and causing, causing your life, your death, your life to be taken from you. The very thing that is putting poison in you that will lead to your death. Look at an image of it and you will live. You'll have healing and life. Let's continue to walk through the passage Israel travels north to the promised land, and God shows them favor along the way. They go from Abath to Ai-Abarim to the valley of Zered to the desert on the border of the Amorites to a place called Beer, which means well. In verse 17, they find God's favor. If you read there, he gives them water and providing. Notice this in verse 17. He gives them water and provides for them. I'm sorry, in verse 16, without their even asking. Just note, we've not seen this yet. Note in verse 16, From there they continued to beer, that is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. And Israel sings a song there, Spring up, O well. Reminds me of a song I sang when I was a kid, right? Spring up, O well. Give to me life abundantly. God had every intention of providing for his people in the wilderness and yet they continue to complain before he even provided they would come and rebel and complain and so here we have an example in this that the people are moving and God is saying I'm taking you to a well by the way for those of you who are love reading your bible for the little fun tidbits you do have a well here named beer that's kind of strange in the bible it's just the unfortunate way that the Hebrew translates into the English. That's the name that it is. It's not a well of beer. It's a well of water. And God has provided life through the water in chapter 21. They continue on. Verse 21 through 35, Israel is going to defeat two Amorite kings. They come up to the edge of the Amorites. I don't know that your Bible, if you've got one of those Bibles with 20 maps in the back, you can probably find one that will trace Israel's uh, journey up to the promised land and across the Jordan. You'll see all of these locations that they stop. They come to the land of the Amorites and these are enemies of God and God gives them victory over two Amorite kings. If you look in verse 21, they come to Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And then if you go to verse 31, thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites um, and Moses sent out to spy out Jazir which has Og as the king and the the way to Bashan which is where they're going to end and God gives them victory over Og and gives them the land of the Amorites and look at down at verse 35 as we close this chapter you get this hope God has sent judgment he has sent healing he's giving victory in the beginning he's giving victories in the end and the last phrase of chapter 21 ends with this hope look at it and they possessed his land victory promise 
This is what God said. They're on their way to the promised land. And there, God, because the people trust Him, because they're willing to go to the land that God said, I'm giving you, they experience victory. And God says, I'm going to give you what I promised. Life and land. It's what God promised them. Life and land. And God has delivered both in chapter 21. And so we end chapter 21 with great anticipation, great expectation of the Lord and what He is doing in the land of Israel. How do we make application? What do we take from this as a church this morning? I think there will be many applications that the Spirit will lead us to, but I want to to say four things to us about how to apply this to our lives There will be things that I want to say in the midst of these four, but let me make four major applications. If you take notes, let me challenge you to write these down. How do we apply Numbers chapter 21? Number one, I apply this to my life by reminding myself, first, God's presence makes all the difference in our battles. God's presence makes all the difference in our battles. Here, Israel is fighting a battle against the Canaanites. It's against the people they went up against without his presence in disobedience to God, and they lost. They were soundly defeated. As a matter of fact, the Canaanites chased them well back, further than they were away from the Canaanites. Here, they go up against that same land, and God gives them victory. What's the difference? Faith and presence. Trusting God to do what he said he was going to do and knowing the presence of God. I've given it. Go, take it. Let me ask you a couple of questions relative to that. Are you doing things on your own in your life right now? Do you feel just kind of isolated that you're not, you're not in tune with God at all? You haven't included God in any of your decisions. You're not seeking His face or His will. Are you doing your life? Are you living life? Are you in your relationships, conducting your business, doing whatever you do? Are you doing it in your own strength and just expecting God to bless what you're doing in your own strength without God? Are you going the way you're going to go no matter what God says? Or are you with the Israelites here saying, God, when you go, when you send us, we will go and we'll have victory. Have you experienced defeats in your life over and over and over recently? It might be that you are not seeking God's will and you don't have God's presence in your life to even know where He's sending you. Church, this is multiplied for us as New Testament believers. You see, because God has said in the New Covenant, what we have that they did not have is we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You have the presence of God in you as a New Covenant believer. If you have come to Christ, the very Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in you. Are you submitting to, surrendering to, seeking the will of the Spirit in your life, moment by moment, in relationship? relationships and jobs, everything you do, God's presence makes all the difference in your battles. Are you seeking Him? Are you fighting some habit, some sin that you don't want to be 
involved in anymore and you keep coming back to it over and over and over, are you trying to defeat and change yourself without the Spirit of God? Are you seeking God daily, moment by moment, to change, to overcome, to defeat the enemy? Some of you today may be reaping judgment upon God. And you need to come back and say, God, is it because I'm living apart from your spirit? Am I sensitive to the leading of your spirit every moment? Trust him. Follow him. Second statement has to do everything with that. Trust in God's faithfulness to his promises. Trust in God's faithfulness to his promises. When you get to the end of this chapter and you realize God has delivered life and land, it's not that the people were perfect here, right? The Old Testament doesn't teach be perfect and God will give you life and land. If you read the Old Testament and you get that, the law was given and the law is given in numbers to show you you can't be perfect. It certainly shows us as New Covenant Christians we can't do all of this. We can't live in a way that will always please our God. So trust in God's faithfulness to His promises. Here, you have a people who rebel, but when they rebel, they realize their sin. They come back to God and they say, God, will you deliver us? Will you give us a way out? And God says, I will deliver life and I'll give you victory. God had promised them life and land. Do you know what? This is exactly what He promised you. He promised you eternal life. Abundant life, John 10 says it. You can have that in Christ. He is faithful. Come to Him. And land. For us, it's a land that is fairer than anything we see here. It's a land that we will go to and it will be a new heaven and a new earth. It will be a restoration of God's intention for His creation and he is taking us there we are so much like israel we're looking for that land and god like uh, like he does with israel gives us small victories he gives us taste of heaven and the church is supposed to be that when we come in here we're to have a taste of what the kingdom is going to be what a taste of what relationships which are restored are going to be you and i have been promised life and land and listen to me church whatever you're going through right now whatever you're experiencing whatever you're struggling with god has promised you life and land, eternal life and an eternal home in a kingdom that will live and last forever. He's promised you trust Him. Why would there be a, 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 a reason for a believer to be discouraged when we look around? You can watch the news and read the papers and look around us and you can just crash in discouragement or you can look and say, God is coming. We need to be active. We need to be ready. We need to be telling people about life and land and God is delivering it and He will bring it. Trust Him. In the end, it's going to say, and they possessed the land because God is bringing it. Number three, I identify completely with the people of Israel in chapter 21. I don't know if this is your experience, so if it is, just bear with me. But perhaps somebody in here is just like this. I find myself on my face before God, struggling with, confessing, repenting of the same sin over and over. 
You see, I have a propensity to sin in my heart and in my life, and I'm, I'm drawn to certain things. You struggle with some sins that, that I have no struggle with. I can listen to some of you talk about what you struggle with and what you have to repent of before God, and I say, Lord, I don't struggle with that at all. How? But I struggle with things that I go back to God, and it's the same things, and Lord, here I am again, and I pray, Lord, forgive me, help me to overcome. Israel is just like that. How many times have we seen them through this text say, Lord, we don't have any food. Where are you? Should have died in Egypt. It was better for us in Egypt. Lord, we got no water. We should have been back in Egypt. Uh, Slavery was better, Lord. This food that you're giving us, Lord, it's no good. How many times have we seen that? Over and over they sin because they're They're drawn away in the same way. Some of it is our situation in life. Some of it is our genetic makeup. Their biological, physiological makeup that you have makes you susceptible to certain sins. The environment that you live in makes you susceptible to certain sins because you see them over and over. And you fall and you come back to the Lord and you say, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Lord, restore me. I'm encouraged here that even the second generation that follows in the sins of their moms and dads and their grandparents, they come to the Lord and they say, Lord, we have sinned against you. Will you forgive? Will you restore? Will you bring healing? And God does it. I'm encouraged today, not because I keep coming back to the Lord and sinning, but because His grace is sufficient for my life. And the cross is enough to cover your sins. Come to Him. Do not let the enemy convince you once you've sinned. Here you are again, coming before the Lord, asking for His forgiveness, and Jesus doesn't want to hear from you. That's Satan talking to you. When you struggle with sin, there is no one that wants to hear from you more than your Savior. Come to Him. Ask His forgiveness. Claim the blood of the Lamb and the cross. Which brings me to the last one. Look to the curse and live. Understand the horrible nature of God sending snakes to bite the people. But i got to be honest with you. My biggest question as I read through chapter 21 was, Lord... Why is the cure a snake? Why would I want to look at a snake, the very thing that is killing me, in order to live? As I thought through that, I I read through what the commentators said, and there's different things that they say, and I've just come to the the conclusion, church, that it goes from Genesis to the Gospel of John. We can look back and see the one that brought humanity down came in the form of a serpent. We're reminded when we think of snakes and the judgment upon God, uh, the snake, the judgment of God upon man and woman and his creation. You see, as they would look up, they could not forget, I think, at least two things. Number one, That is what is killing me. That has caused me death. They look to the serpent and remember this is what is biting, putting poison in my body. Not only 
Are they thinking that? If you remember when we started way back in the book of Exodus, some of the gods that our God, the true God, was trying to just rub it in their face through these, through these um, uh, plagues was snake gods. The image of God in ancient Israel was a serpent. God's reminding them, that serpent is biting you. I'm giving you a way to live. He's rubbing it in the face of, we want to go back to Egypt. What could those gods do? I'm going to give you life. I'm going to heal you. I can't help but to just get you to think with me for a moment what it would be like two million people in the desert, in tents, going out of your way to get up to the promised land. God's given you a, a victory on your way and you're, you're there, but you say, Lord, we, this is too long, it's taking too long, and we complain against God and God says, all right, if it's taking too long, I'll just end your life. You're there in these tents. You never know where you're going to step. It might be the next step. It might be next week. But you're going to step on a viper. And that viper is going to bite you. And poison is going to be in your veins. And death is imminent. You're in the wilderness. There is no healing. There is nothing you can do to say, I can heal myself. Death is imminent. And someone says to you, look up there. You'll see a serpent held up high. It's made of copper. Look at it. And immediately, upon gazing at this brazen snake on a pole high and lifted up, you begin to feel the effects of healing. Whereas before you were feeling poison run through your veins and your body, now you almost feel the reversing effects of looking at this cure. Moses holding the copper serpent. Look at it and you will live. Here's my question. Have you looked to the curse. Listen to me this morning for a few minutes, very carefully. If you have not realized the poison that is taking your life from you, you will never look for a cure. Jesus, when He came, said, I didn't come to heal those who are, who are well. I came to heal those who are sick that need a physician. If today you do not realize that there is poison running through you that leads to death, you'll never look for a cure. You'll never look for the bronze brazen serpent. You must realize there's poison inside of you. You also must realize that there's nothing you can do to bring about your own life. You have no hope outside of one who would heal you. You have nothing you can bring. Listen to this. This is such good news. Do not let the gravity of what I'm about to say escape you. You only have 
to look. You only have to look. Would you look? In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Let's just call him Nick for our conversation this morning. He came to Jesus to ask him about this eternal life. You see, Nicodemus, he knew that he was going to die. He knew that he could not have eternal life. He was a student of religion. And he says, Jesus, how can I have this eternal life you're talking about? How can I live forever? And Jesus looks at Nick and he says, Nick, you must be born again. Nick says, not sure what you're thinking. It's pretty impossible. Grown man, can't get back in my mother's womb. What are you talking about? Jesus says, the birth that you have by water is the one that you can't have again. The birth I'm talking about is the birth that's given by the Spirit of God through faith and trust. Listen carefully to me. He uses Numbers 21 to show Nick what that means, this trust. And he says this, you know John 3.16. Probably 80% of you could quote John 3.16. Every Awana child in here could quote John 3.16 for us. Back up two verses to John 3.14. And Jesus, talking to Nick, says, let me show you what that looks like. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes, looks, might not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus uses this illustration to say, here's what faith is. Look and live. John 8 and John 12, Jesus in other conversations makes it very clear that the image of the raising up the serpent, setting it on a pole, is pointing us to His very death on the cross. And you and I are called to look unto Him, to look at the cross, look at it with me in your mind's eye for a moment and let the Spirit speak to you. Our Savior, Jesus, the one and only Son of God, was beaten He was scorned. He's bleeding on the cross, gasping for breath, breathing His last, bearing upon Himself your curse and mine, your shame and mine, your punishment and mine, your wrath and mine, your death and mine. And you only need look. Look. The curse that is yours. The reason he is bleeding is because you should be bleeding. The reason there is shame on him is because there should be shame on us. The reason he dies is because your death is his. He made him who knew no sin, sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The difference in the cross and the serpent in the wilderness is there is an exchange. The poison that is yours is not just taken away, but it's taken away and put on one for you. Look to Him. Believe in Him. The Bible says He accomplished your salvation. 
God the Father accomplished your salvation through giving His one and only Son to be hung on a tree and everyone who is hung on the tree is cursed. It's the judgment of God put on the Son of God so that you might live. Look, look in faith, look with repentance and live. Feel the healing, the forgiveness running through your veins. Why? Because Jesus took it. He took your poison upon the cross. Look to Him. Oh friend, don't walk from this place today without looking to Christ. Sitting across this sanctuary are people that you're looking to something that you think will deliver life. Do you think that the person that heard would just have given a quick glance to this snake on a pole? Or do you think they would have intently gazed with everything that is in them, praying, hoping, anticipating the healing effects? Look to Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to give an invitation and Steve and I are going to be down front if today you would look to Christ and live. If you would trust Him for your hope, for your life, we invite you to come. The Spirit says, come. Today is the day of salvation. Would you this day step out and come to Christ and say, I want life. We invite you to come. One last, one last thought and I close. Could you imagine how fast the word spread about the life-giving solution to the snake bites? I think I'm just going to ask this sentence and then pray. And you take it and apply it. How bad would you have to hate someone who was bitten by a viper? Poison running through their veins to withhold this information from them. And yet in your family, in your community, in your job, in the nations, there's poison running through the veins of every son and daughter of Adam. And we have but to say, look, look and live. God, Help us. We must go next door. We must go to the nations. Because the curse is there. The curse is here in Bun. And we have the answer. You have the answer. Look to Christ and live. We must go.